Hello and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I'm Aaron, and today I have joining me debut Harlequin historical author Parker J. Cole. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, and I have too. So how how has your 2022 treated you? 2022 has been a good year. It's been ups and downs, but as far as my writing career, it's been absolutely wonderful. And I am so grateful for that. 2020 was an awful year, and we're just going to put that in the box and throw that box in the sea, right? So oh, yeah. yeah, but 2022 has been a great year. And did it feel like 2020 lasted like three years for you? You know, 2020, everyone was so numb and people were like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> so they had like this, this weird zombie night thing. So when you think of 2020, you think of it and you go, what did I do in 2020? Oh, we were all locked down. Nothing happened. But I will say that me and my dog grew closer because we had nowhere to go and nothing to do. We walked a lot and we got to the point where we walked two hours a day. <laughs> so it was oh, great, great bonding with my dogs. That was cool. The reason that you got on our radar is that um, one of our patrons suggested this book for the, our Patreon book club. And I am so glad they did because I enjoyed the, just the heck out of this book. That is so cool. I, I am just, when, when, when you guys mentioned it, I can't tell you how shocked, happy, surprised, and in awe I was. Like, oh my gosh, someone wants to read this book and it's not anyone I know? <laughs> how awesome is that? So I didn't know what to think because I've read this book a million times. <laughs> so uh -huh. I don't know what, to, you know how you can read a book and you read it so often, you don't even see the words anymore. They're just marks on a page. Mm -hmm. So I was so excited to get this opportunity. Oh, yes. Well, so glad to have you here. Are you ready to get into some icebreakers? I sure am. What is one thing you find yourself nostalgic for? I find myself nostalgic for pre-internet writing time. I remember when I was in 2003 to 2004, and I know that was a long time ago, but I can remember having five hours of uninterrupted writing time. It was true I had no responsibilities and I was living with my parents, but <laughs> that uninterrupted writing time, there was no internet that distracted me. To let you know, I still remember a writing session where I wrote for five hours and I had Finding Nemo in a device called a DVD. And every time the movie went off, I would just simply turn it back on because that was my white noise and keep writing. That's what I'm nostalgic for, not being so carried away by social media oh yeah yeah so this is, this is gonna give away um, a bit of a geek that i am but i have a DD &D group that the uh the dungeon master is is a big stickler about phones and and doing everything by analog and pen and paper so they'll they'll you know call us out and be like hey is that your phone is that your phone i'm gonna put it in phone jail <laughs> <laughs> there is something to having yourself away from the digital world. There's something to that. There really is. There is, definitely. Well, what is one of the best purchases you've treated yourself to this year? When I thought about that, I said, oh my gosh, I have been writing so much, I really haven't splurged on myself. But then I remembered, I went to a golf outing recently, and the splurge I did was I bought a bunch of jewelry. 
and it was like gold plated jewelry, you know, nothing, nothing ritzy, mm-hmm. but and I put on the thing, I put on on my hands, put my earrings, this looking cute. And I had never been to a golf course before. So I had on this cute dress that had a gold chain. I mean, it was so cute. So that was one of my best purchases. However, when I went to the golf course, I was totally overdressed for the golf course, right? <laughs> and so I'm looking like there are people here in shorts, they're in socks and shoes. And I'm like, I'm wearing a dress with like heels and I have on gold jewelry. And I said, so I think I'm overdressed. Now, mind you, I didn't golf because I don't know how to golf. I was there as a volunteer for an organization. And I said, huh, I know next time I'll just start wearing, you know, I could just wear jogging pants almost <laughs> to go yeah. to, the, to the golf course. But that was one of the best purchases, even though it was ill-advised. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, totally have fun though. You know, there is just something about getting dressed up that I just love. Feeling real good about yourself when, when, you're, yeah. when you're just all, and I knew all that, decked out. And I knew that when I went there, because when I was there, a lot of the, there were a lot of older gentlemen, way older than me, because like I said, it was an older crowd there but i was there and i can oh sweetheart you looking good today girl you know all that kind of thing and uh, i'm like well thank you older guy <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> now you're making it creepy but yeah. uh, <laughs> but still i was i felt good and I, I was it was good to know aaron that i wasn't the only one there was a young lady there who was also overdressed and i said huh so we have never been to a golf course, so that's why we made this massive mistake. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just like, because <laughs> everyone's there in shorts, khakis, they're in socks, you know, all this other kind of stuff. So yeah, but it was a, my best purchase, but ill-advised. Well, if you came with a warning label, what would it say? My warning label would say, don't box me. There is no box that I fit inside. Don't assume that you know me. Don't assume that you know what's going to come out of my mouth. Don't assume that you can put me in your niche. That is my warning label. I have a wide interest. I have lots of interest and I have lots of things that fascinate me. And I don't want people to put like, oh, she's going to be like this. You don't know how I'm going to be. And I see that happening a lot. People try to box you in. And I'm an individual. And as an individual, I come with a warning label. You don't know what this individual will do. So yeah, that is my warning label. Don't box me. I love it. What is one of your guiltless pleasures? I love cooking. And I love cooking for my family. And it's interesting because when I cook, it's a very methodical thing. It's very organized. But the rest of my life is not organized. Actually, organization is a swear word in the coal house. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, it's, what did you say? I'll you know, go in the corner, you know, wipe your tongue out. You say organized, you know. But when I cook, I enjoy the organization of it. I enjoy creating. And I'm a horrible baker, um, but, but I can cook really well. And my father taught me how to cook as we were growing up. So now I have the opportunity to cook for my family and I love doing it. I love like clearing everyone out the kitchen, get out, don't come in here. And then I can just pour all of that energy, interestingly enough, in a methodical way. And I don't like mythology at all. I like chaos. I like to work in the, the chaos of it all. But when I cook, 
I can't work like that. And I, and I want to, I want to create this work of art. And there's nothing as pleasurable as your family going, oh, that was so good. Mm-hmm. What did you put in this dish? And creating new things. Sometimes I've messed up. And I'll tell you what I did recently, Erin. <laughs> I put together ketchup, sausage, rice, pineapple soy sauce all together it didn't come out right (laughs) and i put in a slow cooker for like 400 hours so it was all mushy and cookie and my sister was like what is this (laughs) i was like it's your dinner (laughs) she's like like, i'd rather eat bread with butter but you know but i do like the exploration of cooking so yeah that's my guiltless pleasures okay so your closest friends and family members are coming over for a big feast. What's your crowd pleaser dish that you make? I call it stone soup. And it's based off a children's book called Stone mm-hmm. Soup. Where these, you, you may remember the story. Oh, I do. Night, whoever, yeah. And so it's thick potatoes with chunky onions, well-seasoned sausage, and a beautiful creamy garlic white sauce. And then we top it with either cheddar, shredded cheddar cheese, hard the hard parmesan not the powder but the hard parmesan mm-hmm, cheese that you mm-hmm. have to uh, shred or we do it with pepper jack cheese and then oh. we sprinkle it with crunchy bacon oh my goodness and i add that with fat biscuits that are ooey gooey with my homemade brown butter that is the crowd pleaser all right well you've got my stomach rumbling so. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a table here if you like it come on you probably have still on the floor but because <laughs> my house is small i have a small house so yeah oh, well thank you so please tell us your romance origin story well i have to go back in time because growing up i read stephen king because i'm a horror like i love horror and I grew up reading Stephen King and my mom didn't want me to read Stephen King. So I would have to hide the books from her. <laughs> so I was at my cousin's house when I was 14 years old and I was looking for something to read. And I looked under the bed. I don't know if I was getting something else. And I saw this Harlequin book. At the time, I didn't know that. I said, oh, this looks like a good book to read. I needed something to read because I've been a massive reader my entire life. So I'm 14 years old and I find this book and I go, oh, this is an interesting book. Some guys ripped off his shirt, you know, some chicks lying over his shirt. Uh-huh. Right, okay, right. So I go pick up, I go, oh my gosh, what on earth are they doing? You know, <laughs> right? And I knew then I was not supposed to read this book. So what from 14 to probably 19 years old, I read every romance novel I could read. And that gave me my joy for romance. So then I was about 19, something where around there when I first saw an African-American author named Beverly Jenkins and her book was called Night Song. And I had never seen African-Americans on the cover of a romance novel. And I had been reading them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And when I saw it, I didn't even read the back. I just saw this black dude pushing a woman down on the ground. Like I have been seeing all the time. I said, Oh my gosh, (laughs) you gotta read this. You know? So I picked up the book and I started to devour everything she, she had. And so Fast forward to a couple of years ago, I went to a romance conference uh, for primarily African-American authors, but anyone could be there. And I met her and I was looking at her because I had just started to get into romance on my own. And I was, I kept staring at her and staring at her. And when she allowed me to give her a hug, I said, this is my hero. (laughs) This is the woman who helped bring in a lot of African-American authors who write romantic 
a historical romance, mm-hmm. you know. And she was she was so down to earth, just nice and just just a lovely woman, absolutely lovely woman. And then when I realized that there was an opportunity to write historicals, what had happened for me is that a group of us got together, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you may be familiar with maps, which are multiple author projects, and that's when the they create a world, several authors enter yeah. that world, write a story, that thing. Okay. So an opportunity came for me to be part of a map called Silver Pines for historical, this is for historical. I had already been writing romance for the contemporary, but it wasn't doing anything for me. And I say that financially, like I was so uh-huh. happy to get $5 that month. Like, yes, five bucks. I could buy coffee <laughs> in two months. I could buy coffee, you know, yeah. you know, that type of thing. So what happened, uh, the, the, the opportunity came to write in this map and I had to write my book because one of the authors has some fi- uh, family problems and could not complete her book in time. I had to write the book in three days. It was novellas, obviously, but I had to write it in three oh days. Oh my goodness. And uh, we were on like pressure. It was so much pressure. So uh, I wrote that and I didn't know anything about historicals. I just kind of winged it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And But I did what I could. I figured they don't have electricity. Um, I didn't know the word okay wasn't used until like 1900s. For whatever you do, don't say the word pregnant until 1950. You know, just kind of <laughs> weird facts that came to mind. Yeah. So I did that and I wrote it and the readers enjoyed the story. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys like that? You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So like that's a three-day book brother you know so how did you like it so that happened and that's how my historical romance started but it all started from when I was a little girl looking for a book to read so yeah oh wonderful wonderful well we're so glad that you're where you are right now and putting out books of your own I gotta tell you though Aaron I I always want to encourage people who are writing and want to write you know, you will never get it perfect. Your first book will never be perfect because it's impossible, Mm -hmm. but just keep doing it. I know that I looked up your stuff. I know you're aspiring to be a romance novelist as well. And I'm like, do it, go for it. You read enough of these, you know what I mean? So it's like, go for it, do it. And, uh, you know, I would love to read it when you finish it. (laughs) So just let me know. Oh, well, thank you so much. I've, I've Mm -hmm. definitely fallen into the, uh, uh, the pit of, of unmotivation. So, I'm, I'm trying to drag myself out of that. So thank you for that. Oh, no problem. Well, congratulations on your Harlequin historical debut, The Duke's Defiant Cinderella, which releases on October 1st. Can you please give us the elevator pitch for the book? Do you know it takes four days to come up with an elevator pitch? <laughs> Do you have any idea how hard that is? So I'll simply say this. They didn't want to get married, but they had to at least look like they were. And then the queen really wanted them to get married. <laughs> so that's your elevator pitch. So that took four days to figure out how I'm going to do <laughs> elevator pitch for this story. I don't know why is it so hard to do the simplest things. I have no idea. <laughs> is it the same with the synopsis too, when you have to send that to the oh, publisher? I, I hate it. I hate it. You're sitting there going, can't you just read the book yeah. and find out? <laughs> I know you have a life, but I don't care. I don't want to write this three to five page synopsis, but you do because it helps you to really focus your thoughts on what the major points are. So yeah, I totally feel you there, Aaron. All right. Well, I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I butcher these names. We were talking about it a bit before we started recording, but Mm -hmm. how did the story of Lilas and Bastion come to you? 
So if any listeners know how to say her name, we are all for it. You could put it phonetically in the comments somewhere because we're totally Please for do. it. But yes, but it came to me because I wanted, I love pre-French Revolution dress, the, the costume. I love that era. And uh, when I was working on this story, what happened was that I met another Harlequin author who really encouraged me. Her name is Michelle Stiles. Uh, she really, really encouraged me because I thought I could never be a part of the Harlequin family because I had submitted to uh, Harlequin's uh, Love Inspired series and I kept getting rejected. I was like, forget it, I'm done. You know. So what happened? Michelle was like, why'd you keep? Literally, she said, why'd you keep? Stop, why'd you stop? And I was like, because I've been rejected three times. Third times is not the charm. Keep stop doing it. She was like, I was rejected more than once. Now I'm on my twenty eighth book. And so Michelle really mentored me. And when I was coming up with this idea, I wanted to do something with art and I wanted to be African-American and I wanted to show French and I wanted to be in that period before the French Revolution. So that's all these ideas coming together. But then I was like, what if my guy is like uh, St. George the Dragon, which is the black, um, they call him now the black Mozart of um, France back in the day during the French Revolution. So I started looking him up and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy was a, he, he was he he was uh, able to fence he was a composer and he was abolitionist and he did all these different things you know i'm like wow <laughs> this man is awesome you know uh-huh. so i based some of my characters off him and then uh spoiler alert he kind of shows up a little bit in the book himself and uh then i said what about lilith i want her to be an artist and at that time i had saw paintings of african americans or uh, people of african descent in art during that time mm-hmm. period and one of the articles I saw said they're renaming this art piece to give a face and a voice to this because they said, um, for it, this was not the title of the painting. I'm just using it as an example, the lady and the negress, right? And so they changed it to another title because that may give her more definition, made her more part of the of the story. And when I saw that, I said, what if there's a French Caribbean artist. And so that's literally how the idea came to be. And then, if I may, the other part was there are many biracial, mixed ethnic, mixed blood, whatever you want to call it, people out there. And what if they had to play around with the idea of always trying to find your identity based off your ethnicity mm-hmm. in mixed blood? You can't because you're both, right? And I said, there are a lot of biracial people who want roles that cater to them. And so we always have that dream of saying, hey, if this became a movie, who will be my movie, right? And I said, well, this book will launch the career of two biracial uh, whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So that was uh, another thing. So that's how the story came to be. Oh, that is great. And that kind of leads into, um, so I, I got this question from the patron that suggested this book, uh, but they wanted to know um, what made you pick the specific time period and setting and that they love the fact that it's so different from the regular Regency historicals. Can you go into that a little more? I wanted to do something that was not a slave narrative, because as as inspiring as those narratives can be, and you always remember the struggle that people of African descent have at, have had, I don't believe slavery is the beginning or end of African 
American history or people of African descent history. That's not the beginning and the end. And that there are many myriad stories available. So that's where some of this idea came from. So I was looking to the French and the French had a code. They had what they call the black code. And this is how they managed their slave populations during now on the islands during the colonial history. And I saw a part where um, once you became a French citizen, life became different. It won't say it was easy for people of African descent. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but um, a, a white man or a white, white man mostly could marry someone who was born free. Okay. And all these nuances for my character, St. George, he could not be an aristocrat because his father was an aristocrat, but he was the commander of Alexandre Dumas, who is the writer of The Three mm-hmm. Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, his father, okay, his father had aristocratic blood. And his father could have been an officer in the French army, but his dad did not want to go through all the rigmarole of proving that he had noble blood. And so he just went in as a regular private, you know, our term for private. Uh-huh. So all this really interesting tidbits started to come together. And I said, what if there were more aristocratic French Caribbean or African descent people than we know of? This is hidden history. This is history that yeah. not often talk about. And then if I can give a quick shout out, another young lady who writes in this area, her name is Vanessa Riley. She wrote a book called The Island Queen. Um, she talked about that Regency England and Europe was more colorful than we know, she said, but you only told certain stories. When she first started out, we all about started at the same time. She was trying to tell people there was more interracial marriages, there were more interracial couplings, there were more people who had money who did not have, weren't of European descent. All these things are coming together. So all these things are bringing together. So I wanted to write something different that I would like to read that I think a lot of people don't know about, but I also wanted to add what is always the tail end of fan of romance. It's a fantastical element, the fantasy. We like the rich decadence of the age, like 1700 France before the revolution was very decadent, particularly among aristocracy. And they had these wild clothes, big hairs, very, this, it's all over the place. It's decadent, ostentatious, and I love that. And when I would look at the dresses, I would be like, oh, I would love to wear this dress. But mind you, the dress is like four feet wide. <laughs> so you're like, I can't get to the, I mean, you couldn't go to the bathroom back then unless the bathroom was, again, then you find how you go to the bathroom, which is hysterical. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, yeah, <laughs> if our listeners know, just look it up. You'll find it. <laughs> so I'll just say this. You'll never look at a gravy boat in the same way ever again. <laughs> so let's just say it like that. But there's all these things that are inspiring me here i think i rambled a bit aaron but did i answer the question you did thank you so much okay Uh, well throughout reading the book i became very intrigued about the story behind the story so to speak there's a really rich and deep love story between the parents of both of our main characters and can you talk with us a bit about that when i was figuring out this story because i've written the story several times as i was submitted to harlequin so I may miss some things here. So I wanted to have an aristocrat and I wanted to have a uh, a woman of color who was free. So that requires digging into what was acceptable back then. And the particular tribe, you find this on the beginning of the book, so it's not a spoiler. There was the Maroon people of Jamaica and they had a queen called the Queen Nanny of the Maroon people. And there is some debate as to whether or not she was an actual historical figure, if she was one person, if she was a bunch of women who bore that Uh title. 
we don't know. There's just things because a lot of traditions are told orally. Okay. So having said that, I had this vision of this. I didn't want just Bastian to have an aristocratic background. I wanted Lillis to have an aristocratic background, but it had to be non-European. It had to be different. So I was thinking she could be a blood descendant of the queen nanny. And there was enough of ambiguity that comes together. Now, because I'm also in an interracial relationship myself, my husband is um, German and Irish, because I'm in that relationship, I don't see him as my white husband. He is my husband. You know what I mean? And sometimes I look at him, I say the bane and blessing of my existence. You know what I mean? So, And I look at him and I don't see this white guy. I see, he doesn't even, sometimes you don't even see the face. You just see the person and whatever that person makes out to be. And one guy laughed at me when I was telling this. He said, what is it, Silver Surfer? I'm like, shut up. Like, yeah. you know? But I said, it's just, you just see that person. And I wanted to have that aspect because there are many people who only see individuals. They don't see color. They don't see all the stuff. They see the individual. And I really wanted to hone in for both of these men. And that was a radical thing during that time. That was very radical to see a person as an individual and in love with these people. So yeah, that was kind of like mirroring my own thoughts about seeing each other as individuals and mirroring my own understanding of love so yeah 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 and it, it tied in great of course to to our, our uh, hero's conflict of of being being afraid to love too much yeah it did because what happened too um when you have an issue in your relationship and you split what happens is that you can almost sympathize with a person who doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone else. Because that was another aspect that I wanted to bring out is that people are worth knowing but they are also capable of hurting you the worst. Sometimes the people who are closest to you can hurt you mm-hmm. the worst. And there is some safety in distancing yourself from people. But at the same time, the richness you develop from wonderful relationships that you have, whether it's a romantic relationship, a platonic one, a friendship, even just your familial, people are worth knowing and they're worth taking the risk. And, uh, I think we're, we've lost a little bit of that, that I rather stay in the, the virtual world and not interact with real people because real people can hurt me, but real people can also uplift you too. So that was some of my thought process behind that story as well. So showing the great love with the parents and how they cared about each other, I wanted my hero Bastian to struggle with, but it hurts when it hurts and it hurts bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So yeah, I get so that was my thought process there. Well, there's more than just a love story going on in this book. You also wrote a very exciting thriller element into it as well. Can you tell us about how that came to you? The thriller element came because I wanted to do something that would involve not knowing the whole truth about yourself. There are aspects of ourselves we don't know. And it's interesting what life will bring to you that will bring out these other aspects. So that's kind of like, that's the metaphorical, right? So in the practical, we have this thing where someone is trying to hurt Lillis. And you're wondering, why are you trying to hurt her? She's 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 a nice person, you know? <laughs> why would you want to hurt her, you know? And so that were, that's where that element came. But I have to tell you, because I wrote this book seven times, that 
thriller element <laughs> kept getting changed because I had a very complicated plot that was really complex. We're talking 10 storylines just crashing into each other. And my editor, Carly, God love her to death. She's like, that's a little bit too much, right? <laughs> we want to focus on the romance. I said, okay. So then I came back, had another element, and now I have five lines of plot <laughs> coming together. She's like, that's a little bit too much, you know? <laughs> So I'm like, what? And so for me, I love the nice, juicy, complicatedness, but just keeping it simple because sometimes the simplest things can really be quite profound. And in that case, in that case, find out who is trying to hurt her, what's going on. Um, and not knowing why that was the biggest thing. Like, why are you trying to hurt me? And, uh, so that was the thriller element. And uh, I really liked the one character who has a pivotal moment in there, but it's also based on my research too. So I don't want to say it because it'll kind of spoil a little <laughs> bit, but yeah, so that's what it was. I hope that answered the question. Uh, yeah, here. yeah, it did. Um, okay. What I got from it is that Harlequin needs to research doing a historical intrigue line. Exactly. And that'll be totally awesome just you'd be surprised people like to have all these various things come together and boof crash because they have the intrigue the regular mm -hmm. contemporary intrigue line yeah but i try to write contemporary recently hardest thing i've ever written <laughs> it's like oh, that's right we have electricity in this century yeah. <laughs> we have cell phones <laughs> we have the internet no one's sending things by messenger or pigeons anymore yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh man i love historical and when i wrote what i haven't written contemporary in a really long time so i wrote it for something else i was working on just finished it this morning and i was like oh that was the hardest thing I've written in a really long time. So, and that's because it was all in my world, and I I stay away from my world a lot because you know you go on TV, ho, oh, bad news, turn that off, you know, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, can you share with us what you put down on your art fact sheet to give us the beautiful cover that this book got? I love this question, by the way. <laughs> so I had three scenes. The first scene, and that was the scene they went with, was this scene here. But on the art fact sheet, I, I wanted it more ostentatious. I wanted that vividness of the era because it was highly ornate. Mm -hmm. So I told them, I said, I see her standing next to Bastion and they're about to go up to like a throne, like a throne chair. And you have glittering lights like chandeliers or crystals or even flickering flames, just something to give that element of light there. And she is dressed to the nines. Her wig is high and tall. And I wanted to have the ringlets come on either side. And she's looking at Bastion, who is dressed to the nines, and they're looking at each other. So they're facing each other. And she looks defiant, like we're doing this, but under duress, uh -huh. kind of that thing. But I love their interpretation of that because it looks more intimate where she still has that defiant look about her and he still has that very nice aristocratic uh, hauteur about him. But the background, when I saw the cover, <laughs> I was so amazed at what they did. I was so amazed. And of course, as the historical author, I was like, wait, where's her gloves? You know, <laughs> like, she doesn't have her gloves on. But the fact that it captured the cover was was beautiful. And I liked that the fact they used the biracial uh, models that I was looking for, because I really wanted to make sure that element was involved, was showing that biracial 
ethnicity there. That was really important to me. So yeah, they did a really great job with that cover. Yeah. And I, I just wish I could be a fly on the wall in the studio for the, the photo shoot that day, because I imagine it was probably yes. a lot of fun for those models and everyone there. Yeah. And they're like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to wear this? The the only thing I wish they would have did um, is just have her have a um, the gloves. I feel like that was, I don't know why, just, that was just so important to me. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's some really small details. Like she had gloves because in French aristocrat society, they probably wouldn't touch a lot because mm-hmm. they're very particular. I know that seems weird because we look now like they, they were, they were so particular that some, some of the men, they wouldn't even let their, their suit coats touch the woman's dress, at least in, 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 in theory uh-huh. <laughs> and probably in real life is probably wasn't, but that was the whole thing. But I'm like, put her gloves on, you know, <laughs> like, but it's not really that important. PJ, it's not that important, but you're like, she needs gloves. And it's just the back and forth. So I made sure that in at least the book, you could see that there was when he's breaking protocol, he's breaking protocol, but, and the English for that matter, if I can do it, there's always this rivalry between the English mm-hmm. and the French. So the English were considered, for the French, they had more openness with their conversation, but they were real rigid with the protocol of how women and women act against the aristocracy. But in England, you know, women are, you know, shaking hands and, and doing things like that. Like, oh my gosh, you, you savages, yeah. you know? So, so it was interesting to see that dichotomy. And, you know, there's some more ideas coming up with that clash. Yeah, that was, you know, a, a bit of a history lesson for me there, because, you know, the, think of French culture today, and it's like, well, they kiss each other on the cheek when they, you know, greet someone, you know? Yeah, but back then, before the revolution, uh, it was very taboo, you know, like, even though a woman couldn't even be by herself in the same room with a guy unless she had a mm-hmm. chaperone, but, and that was in both, in both sets of the uh, aristocracy there, but uh, I had to break the rules, right? So I'm like, she doesn't care. You know, I have to break those rules when they have those opportunities. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Fun. Well, can you tell us what it's like working with the Harlequin historical team? Are there elements and beats that they want to see in all of their books? And just what was the, what was the overall experience like? I can't begin to tell you how wonderful it has been to work with a team. I wrote by myself, but now I write with a team. And that was something I did not expect that, especially my editor, Carly, that poor woman read this book, I don't know how many times, and she was able to really pull out my voice, my creativity, and just help me to structure it better, to think about the reader, even to suggest certain changes, not because she's trying to override my idea, but she's trying to hone the idea better. Like when I had the 10 plot lines coming together, she's like, wait, you know, the readers want to get through the book. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want to get through the book because Harlequin has been around for almost a hundred years. I mean, the romance line has been around for almost a hundred years and readers come to expect a Harlequin book. They know what they're going to expect. And so working with them, has been wonderful, especially after we finally finalized the manuscript and they went through and did the, um, what do you call it? The copy edits. Mm-hmm. And there are a certain things I had said a certain way. They end up changing. But when I read it, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, that sounds like I wrote it, even though I didn't write it. You know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah. Like, I didn't write that one, se- not the whole <laughs> section, just like tweaking, just tweaking. And I was like, they, and I found out they really want to make sure your voice is heard they're just helping you really hone your voice. And so over that time period, I really, really give kudos to Carly because she, she saw something in me that I didn't see. And 
she encouraged that. And I was so willing to listen to any suggestions she had. So if she wanted me to do something, I would just do it. But she said, you know, Paca, you can push back if you want. You know, <laughs> just like, if you don't like it, like, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine because I'm learning through this. And uh, I, I told Carly to her face, I said, I think you've made me a better writer. So, yeah, I uh, it was really wonderful working with them. And the elements they want to see is really keeping the intimacy between the couple that we're constantly following them. You had put on Twitter, Aaron, some of your older Harlequin books that you had that you got from the, from a, I think, a batch order or something you had got. Well, I got the old ones, too. I get them off of eBay. And some of the very old ones, like from the 60s, mm-hmm. they have like the couple starts at the beginning of the story. And by the end of the story, you're like, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you can, I love looking at the old Harlequins because you see how they changed over time. And so they really have grown as a publisher knowing what people want in a romance. So um, they do want to keep that intimacy there. And the beat is to make sure that the couple is central and, and make sure they're, they're a really big part of the story. Yeah, yeah well the the team and you did a great job this book was just was so fun i'm so glad you said that because when you've read something four million times okay (laughs) and i actually went to read it recently i bought my own obviously you buy your own copy of your book because you're like okay at least i sold one sale it's mine (laughs) right but i read it and i couldn't read it because i had read it before and it was almost my eyes were hurting. Like, I can't look at this anymore. I've read these words a million mm-hmm. times, you know, and so I can't look at it anymore. So it's really good that you say that. I'm so glad to have an objective, very honest point of view. So <laughs> I'm glad no, for well, it. Well, of course. Well, looking at your backlist, you definitely know your historical. Can you share with us where your passion for history came from? If we don't know our history, we really don't know our future. That's one thing we got to remember. And when I got into historical from the one thing I told you with Silver Pines, it opened up in me a voracious appetite to know more and more about history. Now, here's a fun thing. I don't intend on writing past 1899. If it's eight, December 31st, 1899 is where I stop. <laughs> so I'll go from 1899 and back. Mm-hmm. I do not want to go into the 19th century and call me selfish, but dang it, I was born in the 20th century. Yeah. And I am not, hist- this is not ancient history, okay? This is, this is not historical, right? It's contemporary. So I love history. I love learning little facts, especially when you fall into a research hole and you learn things. And that's where my passion comes from. I love history. I love learning about how things used to be. Plus my granny, uh, she was born in 1930s and her, um, when my grandmother passed away last year, we started going through the archives. Well, I started going through the archives of family history and I found out that my great grandmother, she was deaf. I think I told you she was deaf and she went to a school here in Michigan called uh, Flint school for the deaf. And there's a picture of her. She's the only African-American child in the picture. And she's deaf. And she's standing next to all these other um, white kids. And I was like, wow, how did she get there? Right? How did she get to this school? Because it would have been expensive. So then that pushes me back even further. And I find out that my great-great-grandmother had had this, um, we'll just say, not very on, not very glamorous work. <laughs> we'll just say it okay. like that. Um and that's how she got the money to send her daughter to this prestigious deaf school. And then I started to go back and I found a marriage certificate from one of my ancestors from the 1850s. And then you just keep going mm-hmm. back and keep going back. It's like, wow. So then I look back through time. I said, all of that is in me. 
all of that is just a part of me. It was just, it just lit up a fire for historical fiction, particularly historical. Oh romance. yeah. Yeah. It's great to, uh, to go back into the genealogy and everything and all the things that you can discover. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially when you, there are people who are looking for purpose, trying to understand themselves. Why do you do certain things? I bet if you were to start to look through your family history, you find out some very significant things and it will help you understand who you are. Like, okay, my family has a history. Let's say, I don't know, heart disease, you know, so maybe you want to not do things to give you heart disease, uh-huh. you, know, you know what I'm saying? Just so really practical. But for me, what was very interesting for my family history, the marriage certificate I saw, um, the price of the marriage certificate was $200. Oh, wow. And I thought that was a typo. This is uh-huh. 1850, I want to say 18, I'm sorry, 1864, I think, or something like that. I can't remember right away. And I was like, why was it $200 to get married? That's a lot mm-hmm. of money even now. You know what I mean? Like, and they, but they got married. And then when I found out that there were two different books, they had the colored books for the black couples getting married and they had the white books for the other couples getting married. And so they would, you know, separate that. And so I said, wow, so $200 in current in that time would be $5,000 yeah, now. And I said, but they got mm-hmm. married. See, they got over that obstacle. And then I'm like, so where did this money come from? See what I mean? So I could take that as, wow, the resilience to get it done despite the obstacles, that's in me. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So the more you start to learn, you go, okay. my Or if you find out your family may have been, you know, pirates uh-huh. or something. <laughs> you know, like, that's why you may have that devil-may-care attitude or why you may take what you want. You know, it's fun. It's real fun. All right. Well, let's get into uh, a couple of fun questions here that I thought up from your your website. So you sit down for a long session of writing. What snacks do you need next to you? Marshmallows and Mountain Dew. Okay. The sugar buzz has to come. I have to have my sugar. Okay. And people are like, you're killing yourself. I know. But at least <laughs> <laughs> at least the, the books come out well. But I also have to have Ruffles chips, plain Ruffles chips. And... Yeah, that's about it. I just need like salty sweet uh, to get me going. And I have a picture of it on my, one of my pages, Aaron. I call what I call a marshmallow tea, <laughs> <laughs> where where I put Mountain Dew in a cup in a, a, a sniffer because I don't drink, mm-hmm. right? So my mother in law gave me a sniffer. I don't know why she gave me, but she gave me a sniffer and or whatever they call. And I put the Mountain Dew in there, and then I split a marshmallow in half and put it on the side like it's an uh-huh. olive. <laughs> it's my marshmallow teeny, you know. And so, so I put it on my face, but it's like, is that a marshmallow with some Mountain Dew? I said, yes, it is. <laughs> I said, shake and not stirred. And, you know, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but yeah, that's what I did. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that, that you know. I, I'm I'm not going to tell my kids that because all of a sudden it's going to be nothing but but <laughs> marshmallow teenies. <laughs> I would like another one. Oh, they call you Jeeves all of a sudden. Like really? You know I mean? but yeah, I love it. Well, from your website, we learned that you have a passion for many things not writing. If you have a free day, what do you spend your time doing? Literally, I'm either reading or cooking, and probably reading more so because I love to read if I don't read a book I read I read like five to six books in a week and I enjoy it and I love it I love the e-readers because you can get them right away something titillates so you can get it right away and 
but I do like my paperbacks too. Sometimes if I'm really in a mood to like get away from the world, I'll pick up a paperback and I'll just go off into a corner somewhere because it brings me back to my childhood when I used to read in the house and we, we lived in an old house and there was these heaters. So I was sitting next to the heater and I will read like Charles Dickens or you know, the Bronte, one of the Bronte sisters, mm-hmm. uh, Austin, you know, just some oh, of the yeah. classics. And I was, cause I was, I didn't know what crumpets were. So I just thought of what it were. So I took an English muffin. I cut it up <laughs> and, I and I had my tea and crumpets. So yeah, that's what I like to do is reading, but I love to cook too. I love it. Love it. Well, okay. So you said on your website that you enjoy anime. So I have to ask what is, what's the best anime you've seen so far this year? One Piece. One Piece is the best anime on the freaking planet. Okay. I love One Piece, and that's why I eat a, um, at a sensei with Monkey D. Luffy and the Straw Hat Gang. Straw oh, Hat yeah. Guys, yeah. So. I, yeah. You know, that's that's a series. You know, any of those long-running series, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with because, you know, I, I can – I've read One Piece maybe too close to, like, the volume 100 in the manga, and so I yeah. can, like, kind of watch the, the anime a bit, but I always feel like – uh it's it's always such an undertaking to click one more episode because it's like there's a thousand of these at least now (laughs) yes there are a thousand of them and the thing about one piece and this is not a critique in a bad way i promise you so rumiko takahashi which is one of the bigger uh japanese writers Mm -hmm. out there she did one that i like it's an old one it's called inuyasha and uh, I loved Inuyasha. It was very inspiring. I still do. I re- found out recently that someone's taken over Inuyasha with the next generation. Okay. But Rumiko Takahashi, she's had several mangas. She's had several series. And so over 30 years, she's created a lot of memorable characters. Whereas Eda Sensei, and it's not a, Oda Sensei mm-hmm. rather, it's not a bad thing. It's, he has this one massive world. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? And so we've been in this world for 20, almost 20 freaking yeah. years, right? And mind you, we love it, but you kind of get fatigued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it ever going to end? I mean, I love the fact that we go on this massive quest. Monkey D. Luffy is, ah, uh, I love his character. I love the Straw Hats. And, uh, but geez, you know, you got something else in mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Can we do the next 20 years or something else? Or maybe five. Maybe we'll do five years. But yeah, that's what I mean. I understand your love-hate. It's like that fatigue. Like even like with Bleach. Like I like Bleach. Mm-hmm. But then you found, you didn't know he was sick? He was sick. The guy was sick for a really long oh, time. Because really? we didn't get any new Bleach. He was sick. I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. It's, it's fine. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, uh, a Thousand Year Blood War is uh, coming out here soon. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait. And then of course I do like um, My Hero, uh, my hero oh, Academia. Yeah. I like... Um, some of the some of the weird ones I cannot remember the name. It was with the girls who were like demons, demon hunt fighters, but they were made out of demons. It was, oh, Claymore! Oh, gosh, I can't remember it, but I like. Thank you. Oh my, That's that the one. is I love my Claymore. favorite series of all time. It was so good. Oh my gosh! And when your girl again, I can't remember it right now because I'm, lots of thoughts in my head. But when she got killed, and it was such a shock. You're like, what? You know, wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. You know, oh, like, yeah. What and you're 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 heartbroken, you know. Then of course, uh, I love uh, Naruto, love Naruto. Not as much as One Piece though. One Piece really takes the cake for me. It really does. But I haven't watched it because I'm like, is he ever going to end this? Because I will get ready to watch it on a site. We'll just leave the site unnamed uh-huh. <laughs> to watch it on a site. And then you're like, okay, now I got to wait till next week. 
now I gotta wait because I, I was getting them when he was they were airing them like Thursday. You get them on Sunday, and so I'm like, oh my gosh, when is it going to end? And it's so good, but you keep going back. Like, come on, relevance. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well I, I didn't mean to turn this into, well, an, into an, 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 an <laughs> anime <laughs> podcast. But anime freaks, anime freaks, anime lovers, this is what yes, happens. Just letting you know. So. All right. Let's get into some backlist questions. Which book from your backlist do you remember laughing the most while writing? You know, I think I cried with all of them because I didn't know if I was going to finish them. So, um, <laughs> But the one I laughed... I think it was the one called A Groom for Purity because I was doing the trope where the girl uh, masquerades as a guy mm-hmm. and uh, he's all conflicted. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I did laugh at that one. But I am what you call a pressure writer, Aaron. I don't write for the reward of, oh, I'm going to be done before deadline. <laughs> I write because if I don't get this done, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> right? So and I'm a procrastinator through and through. I, the, way, the, the fact that I even write is amazing. <laughs> but um, I'm a pressure writer. I tend to write under pressure. I hate that about myself. But if I give myself too much time, I feel as if I don't get a good enough story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that. But that was the book I think I probably laughed out the most <laughs> Because I had to act like, you know, a dude and uh, he's all, like I said, he's all conflicted. Like, oh my gosh, I'm looking at her butt. Well, he doesn't say that, obviously. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's a sweeter, yeah. it's a sweet romance. But he's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm in conflict yeah. here, you know. So, <laughs> so I kind of laughed about that. And I thought about that old movie, Yentl, with uh, Barbara Streisand, mm-hmm. where she plays that. So that was kind of inspiration. For was there a book in your backlist that you feel readers have reached out to you about the most? Um, A lot of people really like... Uh, the one called The Butterscotch Bride. And that was an antebellum romance where I postulated the question, does being a kind slave owner make you a good slave owner or less of a slave owner? And if you had a kind master, would you still want to be a slave? Mm-hmm. So that was the kind of question I did. Because again, I don't really, I'm not, I'm okay with writing it sometimes, but I don't really like slave narratives because they're so depressing. Mm-hmm. Even when I was writing a story, you know, it was just stuff was just depressing. It was just, oh gosh, you know. So I wanted to kind of write uplifting, uh, uplifting slave narrative. I know that sounds so weird, but and I didn't know how I was going to receive. But there were some African American readers who contacted me like, "This is the first book I read about slavery. I'm not mad." You know, and I said, oh, yeah, good, great. That was the whole point, yeah, you know, yeah. so, <laughs> you know, and uh, they and the reason why they like that book, though, is the cover. The cover is so buttery and she looks beautiful and she's looking at this beautiful plantation home. So, yeah, I think that's the most I got mm-hmm. the feedback from. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel taught you something about yourself as a writer? I would have to say that the book that changed my viewpoint about writing was the one called vengeful vows. It's a contemporary. No one's read it, but it's a contemporary and uh, it's the third of a series. And I wrote it during 2015 when my life was extremely chaotic and I escaped into my story. And it was the first time it was therapy for me. And it was me pulling out all of my thoughts into her, this one character and she's a massive manipulator in the story and how here she's trying to control everything and controls absolutely nothing. And that was the one where I realized that 
I write not just to tell stories, but I write for me. I found that again with another book I just recently released called A Match for Bernadette because my grandmother was um, the cornerstone of my reality. And when she passed away in November, uh, my reality shifted. And so I poured out all of my pain in that particular book. So that's when I started to realize I'm not just telling stories. I'm also healing myself through words. Yeah, very insightful. All right, well, we're get, we're at the roundouts now. And since we're coming up on the holidays, we're going to do some holiday roundouts. So what is one of your favorite holiday films? This is going to sound weird, but Alien is. Okay, because I used to watch Alien with Grandma during Christmas. That was like our thing that we did. Watched Aliens and Predator. So it's not a holiday film, <laughs> but we watch it around the holidays. So, uh, and I'm a monster, sci-fi monster movie chick. You know, I love sci-fi. And Alien and Predator are my childhood monsters. Mm-hmm. So around Christmas time, we'll get the horror movies out and we'll start watching them. <laughs> so, but if you just want me to give you, I could, I can give you a holiday film. I could give you one. I could give you a jingle all the way. I like that one. <laughs> so I do like that. But if you want the real answer, Alien and Predator, those are my holiday films. So yeah, I I love the real answer. I'm a huge fan of those those franchises as well. And with the new Hulu yes. movie Prey, that's just sent me on a whole. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. I'm not going to do that to you because the listeners do not want to hear about Prey. I'm not going to do that to you. But yeah, yeah. we'll just say watch Prey. If you can handle sci-fi horror, watch Prey. Yeah, yes. Well, you're walking down the street in a great mood. What holiday song is playing in the background? Now, this is what I could actually answer the question (laughs) at the end of the greater question. I love the song, um, Oh Holy Night. And I love Mariah Carey's Mm -hmm. All I Want for Christmas is You. And then that song... um, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I like that one. And there's one more. No, that was it. No, those three. Yeah, I, I love those. I love those. I, I do yeah. love listening to all sorts of different renditions of Old Holy Night because I just want to yeah. hear how how whoever mm-hmm. sings it sustains that note. You know, you know the one I'm yeah, talking go, about. <laughs> yeah. You look like, oh my gosh, you know. Well, which of your loved ones is the toughest to buy holiday gifts for? You know, my family, because we've been through a lot over the years, gifts don't really mean anything to us. So um, for for my family, but my nephew, who is the apple of all of our eye, it's always tough to get him gifts because he doesn't really want you to give him anything. He says, just give me a gift card and I'll get what I want. Mm -hmm. He's a very studious young man. Um, He's hard to buy gifts for, and my husband is, because my husband... He, again, he knows what he wants, and if you try to get what he wants, he doesn't want that. So it's just easier to say, here's my list, I'll give it to you. So those are two toughest ones to give gifts for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. My my spouse and I, we we usually just get ourselves whatever we want anyway, so when gift-giving time comes around, it's just like, well, you already have everything you right. want, so. <laughs> right, what do you want? So it's like, and for me, I'm hard to get gifts for because whatever you give me, I'm grateful for, right? So if you give me like one year, um, my mother-in-law was like, what do you want? I said, you just get whatever you want to give me. It's fine. No, tell us. We want to know. I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted knitting needles because I knit. And so they got me a whole pack of double-pointed knitting needles. Um, and that's when you write, that's for like circular knitting and stuff like that. And that was a great gift. It was a wonderful gift. But had she given me, you know, cookies, I would have been fine with it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm easy to please. That's the problem. Easy to please. You may give me like one a friend of mine gave me some books 
tip like he gave me um um like a big bag of books from like a barrel of books and i was like oh my gosh and then i didn't matter they were they were used or anything that didn't matter it was no. the fact he gave me books yeah. so I'm easy to please. Oh, well, is there anything you have in the works that you can tell us about? I am working on my second Harlequin. Very exciting. Uh, it's going to take place a little bit earlier. And I'm very excited for it for many reasons. But I'm excited because I think I've learned a lot from my editor that I think my writing is even better. <laughs> we'll see, though. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, though, Aaron. But I'm excited for that. Oh, I'm I'm excited too. So, uh, keep me in the loop on on all the progress. I will. I will. <laughs> well, lastly, where can everyone follow you online? If you go to parkerjcole.com, all my social media hookups are there. So just follow me there. All right. Well, Parker, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been just such a wonderful interview and such a great time talking with you. So, uh, please come back. And I've had such a great time talking with you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We'd love to do it again. Listeners, check the show notes and you can find all the places where you can follow Parker J. Cole online. But until we see you again, have a good night and take care. <laughs>